Brooks, Dantry Leyland. John Romita Sr. died on June 12th, 2023, aged 93 years of age. Romita was arguably one of the, if not the, most important person at Marvel Comics in the 1970s after Stan Lee. As art director, he ensured the entire line of comics adhered to a particular house style. Some artists balk at this, but when merchandising and copywriting your characters, it's imperative a clean look is applied to all of them. Romita was remarkably successful, and if you grew up liking this material in the 70s and 80s, then what you had, be it a pencil case, a duvet, or curtains, probably had Romita art upon them. Before all that, though, Romita was just an artist, toiling away in comics until Stan Lee asked him did he want to draw Spider-Man following the departure of the character's co-creator, Steve Ditko. Romita said, no. Romita considered Spider-Man a Ditko character, and besides, he just started drawing Daredevil and was having far too much fun with old Hornhead. Still, Stan was a manipulative little devil, and he convinced Romita to jump ship. Romita took over from Ditko with issue 39 in August 1966. The character and the artist never looked back. Ditko and Lee created Spider-Man, but Romita defined him. Under Romita's pencils, the strip became more dynamic and sexier. Yes, we lost Ditko's gritty realism, but we gained an icon. Within a year of Romita taking over, Amazing Spider-Man was Marvel's best-selling book. To celebrate a life well-lived, I'm going to pick ten of my favourite Romita Spider-Man covers. These may not be the best, but they are the ones I love the most. They aren't presented in any order, merely, mostly, the order they saw print. I hope you enjoy, and I hope to see some of your favourites in the replies. First of all, Amazing Spider-Man number 39 from August 1966. This was Romita's first cover and indeed first issue of the book. On it, the Green Goblin, grinning as he glides around on his glider, holds a hog-tied Spider-Man, or rather, a Peter Parker, whose Spider-Man outfit can be seen through his ripped clothes across the New York skyline. Another Marvel first runs the copy, Spidey and the Green Goblin both unmasked. It's interesting that in this period of Spider-Man's history, the cover copy grew less and less, as if Stan was growing more confident in letting the art do the storytelling, especially when that art came from John Romita. This is an absolutely stunning cover. How has the Green Goblin managed to figure out who Peter Parker is? How has he managed to capture him? What is going on? It's a perfect example of a comic book that makes you want to pick the issue up based upon the cover alone. It's an early one for Amita. It's very earliest, but it's one of his best. Number two, Amazing Spider-Man issue 73 from June 1969. This cover by Romita features Spider-Man battling Man Mountain Marco, a nondescript villain from the time. He never really amounted to anything. He looks a little bit like Elvis. He's got big sideburns, the big quiff, and indeed the leather outfit open to the chest. What was remarkable about this cover, though, was that this hulking brute was giving Spider-Man a hard time, and that Marco was grabbing Spidey by the shirt, and it was dishevelled. 
It was ripped up. We could see Spidey's back underneath the jumper and even his shoulder where he was pulling it away from the neck. This may not have been revolutionary, but it was rare that we saw this. We never saw Superman get his costume mussed up like this. This was groundbreaking in its own way. It's also very eye-catching. There's no background, it's just white, an artistic device I was always a fan of. In and of itself, there's nothing particularly remarkable about this cover. It is just two figures preparing to fight, not even actually fighting. But to see the hero in such a dishevelled position was quite rare and unique, and it makes it stand out amongst the pantheon of covers that Ramita drew around this time. Sometimes a choice is an obvious one, and it's an obvious one because it is legitimately the best one. Amazing Spider-Man 100 from September 1971 is just such a choice. Again, the cover copy is limited, the spider or the man. At last, the great long-awaited 100th anniversary issue with the wildest shock ending of all time. Again, Ramita has gone more for iconography rather than an eye-catching, eye-grabbing image that signifies, at least in some way, the story contained within the covers. This is just Spider-Man posed. Behind him, there is negative face images of his major adversaries and friends, and those in between, like J. Jonah Jameson. It is a stunning cover. It grabs your attention because of that negative image. I don't really know why Doctor Doom's on here. It's not like he's a villain that Spider-Man fought on any kind of regular basis. But you know what? He has at least fought him, so it's good that he's there. Issue 100 was used all over the place on merchandise covers. The notebook that I used to keep notes in for this podcast had this cover on it. It's t-shirts. It's curtains. It's pencil cases. It's everywhere, and rightfully so. It is possibly the defining Spider-Man image of the 1970s. Giving it a run for its money, though, is Amazing Spider-Man 112 from September 1972. This world was also a first, Spider-Man quitting. It wouldn't be the last time, but in this particular one we have a symbolic image of Spider-Man towering above race riots, gun violence, muggings, you name it, that's what's going on. Spidey Cops Out runs the cover copy, with Spider-Man actually having word balloons on this cover. Go on, world. Hurt each other. Kill each other. Do anything you want. I just don't care anymore. More than any other colour in the Pantheon, this one speaks to us. Because there are times when we must all have thought this. This was created at a very turbulent time, the early 1970s, as the summer of love had turned into the decade of beige. Things don't really change that much. I'm sure there are many of us that have thought about turning on, tuning in, and dropping out. And Spider-Man signifies that cultural moment perfectly in this one image. Slightly out of range here, Amazing Spider-Man Annual Number 6 from November 69. Technically, I didn't really know that I should count this one. It is, after all, an annual of reprinted stories. But it was rare that we got to see John Romita draw the Sinister Six, a bad guy combo we typically link to Steve Ditko. It's not quite as impressive as Ditko's image, but it's fun to see how Romita would have handled this story. 
Spider-Man is being pounded on from all sides, from the Sandman, Electro, Dr. Octopus, Mysterio, the Vulture and Craven the Hunter. Not unsurprisingly, it's Craven the Hunter who looks the best, given that, you know, he seemed to come alive more under Ramita's pencils than any of the others, although the Vulture is pretty iconic in his own right. Again, it's a little bit cheaty, but I kind of like this cover, just to see what Ramita may have done had he been given that story to draw. By the mid-1970s, Ramita was pretty much entrenched in his art director duties and wasn't really handling the interior art that much anymore. So when he did, it was always a delight. Around mid-1970s, he came back to draw a series of magnificent covers, the most magnificent of which is Amazing Spider-Man 151. Flooding the sewers won't help you, mister. Only one of us is leaving here alive, says Spider-Man, trapped in a sewer that is deluging water upon his head and shoulders. Can you guess the shocking secret identity of Spidey's super foe? Runs the cover copy, none of which is necessary or even needed. The image itself is glorious. Again, this one has appeared all over t-shirts and other merchandise, and that's because it is one of Romita's finest images. There's no supervillain to speak of. We don't know how Spider-Man has found himself to be in this situation, or indeed why. All we know is it looks like he's in trouble. Sometimes nature is the worst enemy. Skipping ahead again to a time when Romita wasn't really drawing Spider-Man at all, he only really provides inks for this cover over his son, John Romita Jr., but it's a striking one from Amazing Spider-Man 238 from March 1983. In the shadow of evil's past. A new creature, a new villain. The Hobgoblin makes his debut with this issue and on this cover. He bears a similarity to the Green Goblin, but his colour scheme is completely different. Gone are the green and purples, in is orange and purple, as the Hobgoblin tears asunder a Spider-Man outfit that he seems to have grabbed from somewhere. There's a lot of artistic license on this cover. For instance, the mask isn't really part of the costume, so the Hobgoblin shouldn't be able to really rip the mask and the suit in two, as he does here. But when the image is as eye-catching as this, who cares? I remember buying this issue off the stands, being remarkably entranced by this cover, wondering who was this guy? Remember, we'd never seen the Hobgoblin before. Was he the Green Goblin come back to life in some way? Nah, that would be silly. As we found out, this was an all-new creation of writer Roger Stern, and the mystery of who the Hobgoblin was would build and build over 1983 and into 84, before fizzling out in late 1987. But for a time... It was one of the best mysteries in comics, and it started with one of the best covers. Amazing Spider-Man 274 from March 1986 is also only the inks, but I don't think you'd know it from just looking at the image. This was a Secret Wars 2 crossover, which sends alarm bells a-ringing for people who know how good Secret Wars 2 were. In this issue, the Beyonder battles Mephisto, What's that got to do with Spider-Man? Well, it's for the soul of the spider, tells us the cover copy. Larry Lieber apparently did the pencils, but it's very, very hard to tell. Again, it's another symbolic one. Spider-Man falls to the floor, clutching his head as if it's about to explode. Around the background, floating heads of adversaries and friends. The Green Goblin, Gwen Stacy, 
George Stacy, Mary Jane Watson, Flash Thompson, Robbie Robertson, Aunt May, Harry Osborne, J. Jonah Jameson, and, rather weirdly, Captain Jean DeWolf are all there. It's a curious mix. A number of these characters have been dead for quite some time. A couple of others haven't really been in the strip that much recently. Still, it's another one of those that it doesn't matter what the story was. The image on the cover is enough to make you buy it. Why is Spidey clutching his head? What's going on? The fact that it doesn't have the Beyonder or Mephisto on the cover is probably a point in its favour. Jumping ahead again to July 1998, and not the amazing Spider-Man this time, rather the sister title, The Spectacular Spider-Man. Issue 259 started the three-part Goblins at the Gate story, a much underrated storyline, by Roger Stern, Glenn Greenberg, Luke Ross and Al Milgram. This cover by John Romita is another wonderfully symbolic one. On this cover, Spider-Man fights the Hobgoblin and the Green Goblin as Norman Osborn looks menacingly in the background. Now, I know what you're thinking, and you're right. Isn't Norman dead? Well, he was, yes, but he got better. And isn't the Hobgoblin dead? Well, yes, but he kind of got better as well, or maybe this is a different Hobgoblin. I don't remember. It's all very convoluted. Who cares? The cover is simply magnificent. Again, Ramita uses the lack of backgrounds to great effect, enhancing the colour scheme of the characters on the cover. Ramita didn't draw many covers for the spectacular Spider-Man, the sister title to the amazing Spider-Man, but when he did, they tended to be good ones. Case in point, my final choice of my top 10 favourite covers by John Ramita Jr. Spectacular Spider-Man magazine number two from November 1968. This is a fully painted spectacular, which you've probably seen as clip art anywhere else. Certainly the Green Goblin image of him floating high above New York on his Goblin glider, firing his finger bangers at Spider-Man, has been clipped and used on many pieces of art, including, I believe, one of the covers of the Origins of Marvel Comics book. Spider-Man seems to be struggling as the Green Goblin finger bangs him, large amounts of sparks and light firing at him, blinding him. He's no web. It doesn't look like he's anywhere to shoot his web at. All looks like trouble. This looks like trouble for our favourite wall crawler. But it also looks like a stunningly beautiful painted image by John Romita. The Spectacular Spider-Man magazine did not last long, which is a shame. And of the two issues it did produce, this is easily one of the best. A full length, by which I mean about 68 pages, I think, if memory serves. Nightmare Fest, as the Green Goblin finally lets go and just goes hell for leather against Peter Parker and Spider-Man, inducing every nightmare he can think of to break our favourite wall crawler. And it's all behind a stunning cover. And that's my pick of favourite John Romita covers. I hope you'll have your own. I hope you'll share your own with me. Art is in the eye of the beholder, and I'm sure we all have our own favourites, none of which are invalid. Everybody has a valid take on what art is and what it says to them. And when somebody's contributed as much as Romita, that's going to be different for everybody. He didn't just contribute to Spider-Man. He did many covers over his time at Marvel, contributed many characters, including The Punisher and Mary Jane Watson. So he should not be forgotten in the annals of comicdom. 
I have to confess, I had a very low opinion of the comic book websites that day that did not lead with this story. Instead, focusing on the release of some tedious superhero movie that will be forgotten in six months, or some minor transgression of somebody's made on Twitter by liking a post that they shouldn't have liked. Ramita should have been the headlines of the day. And if you run a comic book news reporting website that did not feature that as your lead story, maybe you should hang your head in shame. John Romita was one of the best, and he will be missed. Hey kids, comics! It was the dawn of a new age of comic book podcasting. Hey Kids Comics was a dream given form. A place where two generations of comic book fans could work out their differences, peaceably. It was a humorous place where nothing was sacrosanct, and it was our last, best hope for joy. But all things end. But from endings can come new beginnings. This is the return of a comic book podcast. The year is 2023. The name of the show is Hey Kids Comics. Michael and Andrew are back with an all new look at old comics and all old looks at new comics. You can go home again. Hey Kids Comics, monthly from Two True Freaks, and wherever you get your comics-related podcasts. Hey Kids Comics! Let's have a look at the emails. Regan Jews emailed in. Hi Andy, hi Regan. I was on Instagram and see that you and the family are on holiday. Congratulations. I'm so glad you're visiting the US again. My favourite Hey Kids Comics episode was the trip to Florida and eating snack foods. Why was that one so popular? It was literally just us sit down, chewing on ding-dongs and banging on about ho-hos. Insert the requisite bad jokes here. It was a very memorable episode for an awful lot of people. Um, yes, well, it wasn't me and the family, really. It was just me and the wife. It was our anniversary. We went over, went to the Keys, which was lovely. We went to Miami. Now I see why Michael Weston really didn't want to be there. Uh, and then we spent some time in Orlando with Michael and Rachel Bailey and bumped into Bill Robinson and Josh Bertone and Scott Gardner. And that was lovely. And Bill brought his family and they're all lovely. And there was a couple of people that I tried to meet, but couldn't for whatever reason. Either their working days didn't clash with mine or they were coming down the week after I was there. Yeah, it's just one of those things, isn't it? Can't do everything. But yes, it was very, very fun. And I very much enjoyed it. It was lovely spending time with Michael and Rachel as well. We did a comic shop run, uh, which we uh, we talked about on, or we recorded. I think Mike's going to release that as a views from the long box, if he hasn't already. Because uh, that was fun. Will you be doing a trip summer report episode or play audio of your family trying food at Star Wars Galaxy's Edge? Oh, I just preempted your question. Uh, Michael, again, I just said Michael Bailey and I recorded an episode not around the pool, but close, uh, about us going comic shop hunting one day. That was fun, uh, where we talked about what we bought. So that'll be coming out as a views, I would imagine, at some point in the future. We did not try any food at Star Wars Galaxy's Edge. In fact, we didn't eat at all in any of the theme parks, apart from having a coffee and a croissant in um, Universal Studios because my wife's a vegetarian, so which means I'm 50% vegetarian and the theme parks don't really cater to vegetarians. So uh, we didn't eat anything in the theme parks, really. Uh, we went all day without having anything mostly, which was fine. It was too hot to eat anyway. 
Uh, Regan continues, I heard that Disney will be shutting down the Star Wars Hotel in September. Yeah, I read that while I was over there, and I'm sure it's nothing to do with the fact that it is a ridiculous price, an exorbitant price, to be honest with you, and that also there's an awful lot of people, certainly in this country, it may be the same in other countries as well, I don't know, who are electing not to return to Florida and the theme parks because of that, because of the prices. The, the prices of tickets have skyrocketed. I certainly couldn't have afforded for all five of us to go again. And certainly not if they'd brought their extended family of my daughter's boyfriend and my son's girlfriend. You know, that the fact that it was only the two of us I looked at the prices of Disney, and I'll be brutally honest, if they hadn't got Galaxy's Edge, I probably wouldn't have bothered with Disney. Because I have my issues with Disney as a company generally. I mean, I support the Pride Weeks and stuff, but there are some things that I find a little bit dubious about Disney's business practices. Um, but the price, more than anything, I'd, if they hadn't got Galaxy's Edge, I wouldn't have gone. Because there was nothing else really new there that was worth the money. Uh, I didn't get to do Tron or Guardians because both of those are brand new and they have that thing where you have to book your place in line. And both times we arrived at the theme parks and it was already 1pm before you could book your place in Guardians when we went to Epcot. And I'm like, but at 1pm I don't know where I'm going to be. You know, it takes all the spontaneity and fun out of your holiday if everything is prescribed and at this time you're going here. And I mean, I know it's probably easier for Disney to keep an eye on where you are and what you're doing at all times so they can bleed more money out of you because they seem to think that that's what you are, a cash machine with legs. But as somebody who likes to have a certain level of spontaneity to his holidays, uh, I can't be done with that. So, you know, I think it'll be a while before I think about going back anyway, put it that way. Uh, Regan continued, the other thing I wanted to mention was I saw the Strange New World series based on you mentioning it on the show, the Star Trek one. Thank you for doing that. It is a fun show compared to Discovery. The writing, characters and actors are enjoyable. The one decision that took me out of the show was the actor chosen for James Kirk. He just doesn't look or sound like Kirk. He just looked more like Jim Curry. I've seen the clip of Jim Curry that you mentioned. Yeah, yeah, he does. The actor who plays Kirk in the YouTube series Star Trek Continues was more believable as Kirk without going overboard. What are your thoughts on the portrayal of Kirk in Brave New World? Uh, Strange New World, sorry. Um, I loved Strange New Worlds. I thought it was easily the best Star Trek series since Deep Space Nine. I didn't have any problems with dancing around the continuity or the fact that the ship looks more advanced. Here's the thing. Strange New Worlds is being filmed today in 2023. It is not being filmed in 1966. The creators should not be beholden to filming techniques and set construction that was made in 1966. They shouldn't. If Roddenberry was making Strange New Worlds, he would be using new technology and it would look like it does on that show. And if you have to squint a bit to make it fit into continuity, well, that's what fans do. You know, I, I would much prefer we went back to the days of fandom where a new information was presented to us and we went, all right, how do we make this fit? And didn't scream, he's broke, cannon! Like screaming toddlers sulking that we've just dropped our ice creams. But that's just me. Um, for the most part, I was very fond of the show. Until we got to Kirk. Now, yes, I do agree with you. He does not look or sound like Kirk. And this is one of the places where I don't buy 
well, he's at a younger part of his career and he's a different character. Well, he's not really, is he? We knew what Kirk on the Farragut was like. There's been a lot of other media about that. He even talks about it in an episode of the show. More than that, though, as much as I am assured by my daughter and my wife that he is a good actor, because he's in The Vampire Diaries, which they both love, I found him to have none of the charisma or charm of William Shatner or even Chris Pine. You know, you can like or not like the Kel Kelvin Universe movies, but Chris Pine had charm and charismatic stage presence that this guy just did not have. And I see from the trailer to season two that he is going to be in another episode. I was kind of hoping we wouldn't see him again and that was just going to be a one-off. You know, unless he's going to play it vastly different to how he played it in the episode of Strange New World he was in, he's going to have to go some to convince me that he's Kirk. You know, he's going to have to go quite a long way to convince me that he's Kirk. Have you seen Star Trek Continues? I don't know. I've seen a couple of those continuation series that YouTube did. I know there's more than one of them. I don't remember which one Continues is. So um, there are many guest stars like Erin Gray, Lou Ferrigno and Colin Baker. Uh, so I may have seen them. I think, isn't Lou Ferrigno green in his? Seemed like typecasting to me. But yeah, I may have seen one or two of them. I don't remember a lot about them, to be honest with you. Thank you for your time, Regan. You are very welcome, Regan. Thank you for you taking the effort to email in. If you want to take the time to email in, uh, it's heykidscomics at virginmedia.com. Join in. Join in the fun. And uh, we'll see what's out there next time. Take care. Everything's going to be fine. Once more with feeling, everything's going to be fine. And I'll see you all again real soon. Goodbye.